starting in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33, starting in verse 14. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at the time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is what she will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. And secondly, Malachi chapter 4. For look, the day is coming burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will come stumble. They come, the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Justin. Some interesting passages there to begin what effectively feels like the start of the Christmas season. Or uh, if you're a fan of Hobby Lobby, we're six or seven weeks into it. Um, good morning. And... As far as the church calendar goes, Happy New Year. I know conventionally we wait until January 1st to celebrate that, but as far as the church cycle of worship goes, today is actually the beginning of the new year, where we begin in Advent in preparation for Christmas, our first high holiday, and then we'll move into a season of Epiphany, which needs some explanation, and then go into Lent as we prepare for our big high holiday, Easter, and then we come through the end of the year, which usually ends around Thanksgiving. So it's fitting that to end last year, we spent eight weeks in the book of Revelation, where, where our story ends, and we're starting over. And you might say, well, are we just starting over and going to be doing the same thing? Yes and no. But there's an element of life in the church, an element of Christian worship that is designed to be repetitive, because I don't know how many of you have dealt with small children or large adults, but it doesn't matter. You can't say anything once, so you just keep saying it over and over again, and that's kind of how this works. So Happy New Year. Now we're going to be talking through, um, over the next four weeks, some, some fun ideas as it relates to Advent. Today we'll be talking about the fact that God is a promise-making God. Next week, we'll deal with the fact that his promises seem to take longer to come to fruition than any of us would like. God seems to insist on this little virtue known as patience, and you and I can struggle at times with that. And then the third week, we're going to deal with how he responds to our faithfulness or lack thereof. And then the final week, we will do with the idea that sometimes it just doesn't seem like God says much at all. 
And how can Advent prepare us, not only for those seasons, to, to endure them, to, to suffer long, but really to, to mine them for discipleship opportunities? But today we deal with promise. And uh, as you reflect on the idea of a promise, the, the word itself um, begs a lot of questions. I'll give you an example. I'll just a hypothetical situation. Um, what if you were to tell me, Justin has promised to give Ryan a $100 bill on Friday. Justin's promised to give me $100 on Friday. On the surface, that sounds awesome. Great, okay, $100. Wasn't expecting that. That's great. But then the questions start to roll in, don't they? Wait, why is he giving me $100? Does he think I need it? Why did he have to promise? Couldn't he just say that he would do it? What's he intending for me to do with it? Is this, does this come with any strings attached? How can I be sure that he will do it? Can I trust his character? Does he have a track record of keeping his promises? Does he even have the ability to give $100? Who is he to say that I need $100? You see how the questions start to roll in. What is his character like? Does he give $100 to lots of people, or is there something unique about me? Is it something I need, or is it something that's just pure gift? And those are the kind of questions that run through my mind whenever I reflect on the multitude of promises that God makes in the Bible. I want to know why. I want to know how sure I can be. And more than anything, I need to know the character of the one doing all the promising. This is an interesting text that he just read for us. The Jeremiah 33 text is nice. It's a promise of justice and righteousness and, and God's deliverance. The, the Malachi 4 text is it's, it's in the same vein, but it's, it's got some, uh, some judgment to it, some grit to it. It talks about that in the end, like fathers and sons will be drawn together, that the hearts of fathers will be drawn to their children and likewise children to their fathers. And, and I thought, what an appropriate passage to, uh, to reflect on as we come out of a week where many of us have spent quite a bit of time with family members that we don't normally spend quite a bit of time with. Thanksgiving is great, right? Mostly. Anybody have like some um, awkward to contentious conversations with relatives over the last week? In other words, did you guys talk politics at all? And have you, I, I mean, I grew up in a, in a blended household in the traditional sense of the term, but I married into a blended household in now the OUOSU sense of the term. And so you can imagine the conversations that were taking place just last week. And, and I wonder how much we can glean as, as you, you have this, this sense that, yes, we love each other. Oh, family is awesome, mostly. <laughs> but there's part of this promise that there will no longer be any dissension among family, that, that the hearts of fathers and children will be turned to. There's part of this promise that many of you will likely feel is unfulfilled at this point. It's unfinished. Or it's incomplete at best. As we get ready for Christmas, and you would think of the promises that God has made, do they fill you with hope? Or do you, do you 
think about those things with something of a jaded sense of disappointment. For most of us, it's probably a mix of both. It's probably a mix of both. But the long and the short of it is, what we, what we need to, to focus on today in preparation for four weeks from now is that God is indeed a promise-making God, but he's not a promise-making God like Justin would be a promise-making friend. There's a, there's a radical distinction, and that is underselling it quite a bit. You see, God makes promises that are not only sound because of who he is, but he makes promises that carry just by their nature more weight. And one of, the, one of the, the, the most important terms that you can see in the scriptures for that kind of promise is that God is a covenant-making God. He makes covenants. Now, a covenant is, is um, in its simplest form, it's a, like a, a contract. It's a, it's a formal agreement. But you see in the scriptures that there is this interesting pattern of how the covenants work. And it's, it's not as though um, uh, Israel invented this. This is actually just ancient Near Eastern custom. But there's, there's this pattern that, that God follows with his people that you see in culture whereby a powerful person, a powerful party, looks at someone who is weaker and says, I will care for you in exchange for your allegiance. This is how kings would function. It, it, was, it really wasn't to their benefit to go through and to conquer territories and then just waylay the people. He needed to absorb them into his empire to benefit himself. And so the benefit ran both directions. Look, I won't crush you. You will just now serve me, and in return, I'll protect you. And, and the Lord makes those kinds of promises with humanity all the time. Begins in the garden, Genesis 3. Told you we were going to start back at the beginning. Begins in the garden. They've rebelled against him. One of my favorite phrases for what Adam and Eve did is that they usurped authority they did not have. At least they attempted to do so. And God responds in judgment. And yet he also responds in mercy. You want to know the first um, sacrifice that was made? It was when God killed animals to clothe his people who all of a sudden felt shame. You have the very first time that blood is spilled to cover shame, right there in the garden. He judges them, condemns them to no longer be in his presence, but also cares for them in this merciful, merciful way. And then he promises, by the way, I'm going to fix this. This snake, this serpent is going to cause problems, but you will crush its head or I will do so through you, we later find to be the case. So God says, um, the, here's, the, here's the agreement, here's my promise to you. I'm going to hold you in judgment, but I am going to care for you along the way, and eventually I will fix this. Just a few chapters later, he makes another covenant. I will never again destroy the human race like that. Just a few chapters later, Genesis 12, he makes a covenant he tells a man named Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great name that everyone will know. I'm going to give you a great land that everyone will be jealous of. I'm going to give you descendants that you cannot even number. 
Genesis 12. He makes that promise. We find out later in Galatians 4 that that seed, that descendants, was actually supposed to be understood as descendant, as Jesus. And we see these promises start to take shape. In Exodus 20, he gives them the law. Tells the people of God, if you will obey me, I will care for you. The refrain in Deuteronomy, say Deuteronomy 5, where the the Ten Commandments are given again, the law is given a second time. The refrain of that book is, follow me so that you may live long in the land. In other words, serve me, swear your allegiance to me, and in return, I will protect you, and I will prosper you, and I will bless you to no end. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David that his throne will reign in perpetuity, that he will never cease to have someone on the throne. And there are very many periods of time in Israel's history where that did not look like that promise was being kept. And yet, in the end, the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up and the promise is fulfilled. God makes covenants with his people. He promises them. In Isaiah 52 and 53, there's not necessarily the formal covenantal language, but you have this promise being made that I will send my servant, and my servant will bear the sins of the world. And he will be despised, and he will be crushed for the sake of everyone else. Until Jesus showed up, that passage was conventionally understood to be Israel as the servant of God. And yet, the Son of Man shows up. The suffering servant goes to the cross, and the promise is fulfilled. God makes these promises in Christmas is the beginning of those really blossoming and coming to fruition. And and I want to just ask this question. What do we do with the promises of God? There's two major directions you can go. You can doubt them. But I I don't want to really run that one down today. If you doubt them, I'd love to have a conversation, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about, for those of us that do believe in the promises of God, how do we respond in our belief? Do God's promises, his word, do they inspire in us hope or complacency? In other words, how do you respond when you know the end of the movie? When you know how things are going to work out, if you can trust the promise maker to make good on his promises, how do you respond? Do you then live your life in hope of those promises being delivered, or do you live your life complacent, assuming they will, and in some sense taking advantage of the trustworthiness of the very one who makes the promise? And again, for so many of us, that's probably a bit of a mixed bag. Some of this, some of the others. But if, if we can tell what we believe by how we, how we live, what is the fruit of hope? I think the clearest evidence that you live a life of hope in the goodness of God and in the certainty of his promises to both redeem and to bless, to restore and to reconcile everything to himself, the clearest evidence that you have that hope is that you are faithful, that you have sworn an unwavering allegiance to the one who makes these kinds of promises. 
Well, what does it look like if you're complacent? Well, complacency breeds licentiousness. In other words, if I, if I can presume on the mercy of God, if I can trust that his promises will come true, then it's very tempting to just sin all the more so that grace may abound, to use a Pauline phrase. Or this other one is a little more sneaky. Another indication of complacency as it relates to God's promises is to believe something about those promises that isn't true. I don't know about you, but at times I have been frustrated with the Lord because he has not delivered on something he never promised he would do. I have been frustrated with the Lord because he did not promise that my life would go smoothly. One of my deepest, deepest, most difficult moments with the Lord was while my wife was pregnant with our second child. I didn't plan to talk about this, Rachel. Rachel always asks, are you going to talk about us? I just need to know. I didn't plan to talk about this, but it just came to my mind. One of the deepest frustrations I had with God was when Rachel was pregnant with Audrey and for all we knew and what all the specialists were telling us is that she was going to be born with extreme um, internal organ problems. And I was, I was just in a dark place with the Lord. And she's fine. But I, I look back at that time now six years ago and I, and I try to, like, there's, there's, there's some natural, I think, paternal um, protective stuff that wells up in you when that happens. But I also think that it, 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 it communicated that I believed that God owed me a comfortable, easy-sailing life, which I can't find in this book. But it crept in. I began to presume on the blessings of the Lord instead of vigorously and faithfully hoping for him to make good on what he's actually said he'll do. And I wonder if in part our expectations can run wild because we just stop reading. Psalm 25, you can turn there, it'll be on the screens. Psalm 25 is so provocative because of how good it assumes God is and how meek and even passive the psalmist uh, understands himself to be in this relationship. He says, Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. And then listen to this appeal. Make your ways known to me. Notice how different that is from my response when I was worried about my unborn daughter. I said, make your ways what my ways want them to be. Make your ways my idea, Lord. He says, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And then this is the part I have the hardest time with. I will wait for you all the day long. These promises, I wish they were uh, 
Smooth sailing. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But as God promises in the garden that he will, he will indeed rectify what has been ruined, and that he will not judge the entire human race later, and that he will give for the entire human race a blessing that we later find is the person of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us this example with the law that says, if you will follow me, if you will swear your allegiance to me in faithfulness, I will protect you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. An idea that did not go away when Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. He says, I'll have a king who will rule on my behalf in goodness forever. And he says, and he will suffer as a servant of the humanity who will then in turn serve him. And my expectations don't always line up to how this ought to work. But that's why Advent can be a wonderful yearly reset as we dig down and reflect on some of the discrepancy between what we want or what we perceive and what is true. Can we bring the lights down, please? This can be a helpful thing to think through. These candles are not just intended to be pretty. They're intended to symbolize something. They're visual communication. That's all they are. But they're an indication that in the time where if we, if we go back, Israel's waiting for its Savior to come, and, and it just seems bleak. It seems dark. God does not seem to be speaking, and yet Jesus comes. And now in the meantime, as we wait for his second advent, his second coming, sometimes it just seems bleak. And yet the truth is there, and the truth, like a light, shines in the darkness. So as we transition into worship, I just want you to think for a minute, to reflect on, maybe even spend some time in quiet prayer on what it means to trust even the smallest glimmer of truth when it's surrounded by darkness or a larger glimmer of truth as it's surrounded by darkness. And maybe where we get these kinds of truths. Light has incredible value. And Advent can be the season where we remember that though the light may seem dim, Though things may seem bleak, the Lord has never failed to keep a promise. We will actually share communion with one another, so if you um, did not grab that on your way in, now would be a good time to hop up and, uh, and do so. I want to conclude our time this morning with just a short reflection on a, a time in the Gospels where... The promises of God are misunderstood, and uh, in, in his response, in his correction, Jesus continues to offer more and more promises. You see, in John chapter 6, Jesus is becoming quite popular. He's, uh, he is known as a healer, a miracle worker, as one who can care for the multitudes and feed them and do all sorts of wonderful things to such an extent that they are prepared to embrace him as this new king. And what they want is they want a, a, a Jewish king to rise up and to overthrow Roman occupation. 
Jesus will do that. It will just be from a cross and an empty tomb. But that's not what they have in mind. And, and Jesus in John 6 rebukes them for such thinking. He says in verse 26, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, you want me because of what I can do for you and do for you in a very temporal sense. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. He offers a promise there, eternal sustenance, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What can we do to have this? And he gives them his word. He gives them a promise. Believe in me. That's what you must do. Further down in verse 47, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Another promise. I am the bread of life. Now it's interesting to note in the, in the context of his ministry, as the timeline is unfolding, the, the disciples have no concept for what this is when Jesus is saying the words that we're about to read. When he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they had no framework for this meal. What Jesus is saying is that you must consume me, you must be all about me and all the things that I am. And John the Evangelist, decades later, writes it in such a way where those of us who know about that final meal will make the connections necessary. But just think about hearing this for the first time and how a sermon like this will clear a room in a really bad way. I am the bread of life, he says. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They trusted the promises of God and yet that was limited. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. A promise implicit there. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Another promise. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, another promise. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. They wanted to make Jesus king. They wanted to get the Romans out of there. And Jesus, we come to find out, says, this is what I can give you. This is evidence of a rock-solid promise that I cannot help but to make good on. And so whenever you and I come together every week and we share this meal, we get to declare the promises of God to be true, to be something in which we hope, not something on which we presume. So with great hope and with faithful hearts, we eat the bread. And with great hope, and faithful hearts, we drink the cup. I would love to just spend days reading through the promises of God 
but I was told I didn't have that kind of time. So here we have some promises that you may just want to jot down. God makes radical promises to give you the spirit strength. That is the strength of God himself in Ephesians 3. He promises that when, imagine a season filled with anxiety like anything getting close to Christmas. He promises to give you rest in Matthew 11. He promises to care for your needs in Philippians 4. In Joshua 1, among many other places, he says, I will be with you. He will deliver us from our sins, not only save us from our sins, but actually deliver us from ongoing sin, 1 John 1. Nothing, no heights, nor depths can keep us from the love of God, Romans 8. And then the classic promise, John 3.16. God so loved the world, whoever believes in him, have eternal life. So these promises are intended to inspire hope in us. Romans 5, this will be on the screens. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We started by our time by talking about the fact that God is a covenant-making God. He is the stronger party who cares for the weaker party in exchange for our allegiance. That's the gospel. We can believe the promises of God because the gospel is true. Because God cares for us. He says, you can't do this on your own. Go ahead and join my kingdom. Give me all of your allegiance, all of your faithfulness. Serve me and my ends. And in return, I will care for you. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will save you. He makes the same kind of promise, this covenant-making God. And we can look at Jesus. Jesus, as evidence that those promises have indeed come true. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 1. For every one of God's promises is yes in him, that being Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Advent is a season where we, with greater resolve and intentionality and a deep memory, believe the promises of God. I pray that our beliefs will manifest in hope that is rooted in the character of God and that our beliefs will result in hope that manifests in faithfulness that trusts that God was faithful first. Amen? Amen.